Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm speaking with Mark Stein, author of the new book, The Undocumented. Mark needs no introduction, but I'll also note that Mark is the author of America Alone, The End of the World as We Know It, a New York Times bestseller in the U.S., and a number one bestseller in Canada, where it was subject the subject of three separate complaints to the country's many human rights commissions, and I, I put air quotes on human rights. Mark also fills in frequently for Rush Limbaugh and other radio hosts as well. Thanks so much for joining me, Mark. Hey, my, my pleasure, Benjamin. So, Mark, the first question I have to ask is, I know that you sometimes need to sell books to feed your music addiction and to allow your thriving music career to continue, <laughs> but... Other than that, why should Blaze readers pick up The Undocumented? Uh, well, I, I think it's, uh, it's a lot of snapshots of the big picture. And uh, it's, it's I, I, I'm hesitant to say greatest hits because there's a lot of greatest hits that aren't in there. But they're, they're pieces of mine that I think stand up over the years, the bulk of which haven't been published in this country and which I think um, point toward where we're heading as a society cumulatively. Um, and one of the advantages we foreigners have uh, over you native chappies is that uh, this stuff has all been tried on us. We're the guinea pigs. We're the canaries in the coal mine when we get that whiff in the nostrils uh, uh, over here because we recognize that smell. So I've, I've put in there some stories about welfare, for example, uh, from a uh, from the United Kingdom and from Canada that I think apply to the uh, multi-generational dependency, uh, which is something that has been aggressively advanced by the Obama administration. Don't forget the Obama administration boasts that there are 50 million people on food stamps. They don't think this is a tragedy. They think this is a sign of how great the program is. I mean, they give the impression that they'd be happy for 300 million people to be on food stamps. They advertise food stamps in Spanish to people in Mexico. It's one of the benefits of coming to America. Um, and so I, I've picked out stories that I've written about from around the world, Canada, uh, Britain, Australia, that I think uh, have great relevance to where we're headed. And, there's, and there's, there's a lot of other stuff in there, too. It's, there's some little bits. You mentioned, I guess, host for Rush. Uh, there's a couple of favorite little riffs uh, with listeners from Rush that uh, my assistant uh, painstakingly transcribed and, and we put in the book there, too. So, but cumulatively, uh, the idea is to look at how fast things have changed in what I regard as a relatively brief period. And, you know, it's interesting you, you bring up that these progressive policies have been tried throughout the world, and, and you've seen it up close and firsthand all over from the Middle East to Canada and elsewhere. It's kind of ironic, actually, that the U.S. in reality was generous enough to provide the defenses for Europe that enabled Europe to spend all of their money on the kind of policies which you know, help create 50 million people in, on food stamps. And by the way, I mean, what self-respecting first world country doesn't have 50 million people on food stamps? <laughs> well, well, uh, just the numbers are, in, are incredible there. I mean, you're, you're right, your point about uh, the, the American security guarantee after the Second World War. Um, basically, when you listen to liberal progressives rave about, say, health care in Germany, 
Uh, essentially, American taxpayers pay for health care in Germany by absolving Germans of the need to pay for their own defense because uh, the United States Army basically lives in Germany. Uh, and because of that, that frees up a lot of money for Germans to spend on a great health care system. Um, America has really been the sugar daddy for, for the rest of the Western world in the post-war era, which is why they tend to behave sometimes like uh, in great teenagers. I, I don't think uh, my late colleague at the Daily Telegraph in London, Sir John Keegan, um, who was one of the most eminent military historians of our time, uh, he used to say that a country without its own military is not a real country. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And uh, essentially, the American security, uh, we were talking about welfare earlier. I mean, defense welfare is as bad as uh, any other kind of welfare. And defense welfare queens, uh, which is what many prosperous nations in Western Europe are, uh, it's that's not a healthy condition psychologically, and if you look at um, you, we're, we're, we, we I say somewhere in the book we're moving into a world where like where Norway, which is one of the wealthiest societies that has ever existed, wealthier per capita than the United States, can't project force to its own border. But a basket case like North Korea is a nuclear power, and Iran is planning to give its nuclear technology to Sudan. Uh, a barbarous genocidal state when they only have machetes. The idea that they'll cease being barbarous and genocidal when they have nukes is absurd. And so the idea that this, this uh, bizarre situation where you have wealthy countries like Norway and New Zealand that are incapable of defending themselves and nuclear basket cases like North Korea and Sudan, the idea that that arrangement will hold uh, for long, <laughs> I think, is, is pretty, pretty insane. It seems that over time, societies that prosper, societies that build up their defenses, that build up their cultures, always seem to forget the very principles that enabled them to get where they end up. And so it allows for a situation where barbarians, like you said, with machetes, are able to slay great powers. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's a, a natural cycle in civilizations that... Uh, uh, they first they become civilized. Uh, they start out fairly primal. You have to find land, hold land, protect that land. Uh, but then uh, you become civilized. So you, you're not on guard the whole time. People become doctors and lawyers and novelists and playwrights. And then the next stage is that a a kind of civilizational softening uh, sets in. And if you look at the issues we obsess about, the issues that are the most important things to people, far more important than uh, the Islamic State's new caliphate hacking off the heads of American citizens uh, halfway across the world, people obsess about, you know, transgendered bathroom rights or whether uh, college, female college students uh, at wealthy universities in their early 30s should have taxpayer-funded contraception. And I don't, think, I don't think there's any doubt that we are fairly well advanced. When you have a society of 30-year-old children uh, d doing uh, these pointless, desultory six-year bachelors, uh, that we're, we're actually fairly advanced along that line. And the question is whether we can recover it. Uh, the, 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 twen the 20th century was a bloody century. Um, but one advantage that our grandparents had, particularly if you happen to be in, say, Central Europe, 
uh, is that you are under no illusions about the nature of the world because uh, as stable and prosperous and agreeable as life was, you always knew that one day, you know, if you were in Poland, one day it's the Germans crossing the border, the next day it's the Russians crossing the border. Uh, you're not under any delusions about the reality of life. And we now are in a, like a bubble of, of, of illusion. Uh, and uh, that's, that's problematic. As you were describing that, the, just the, the name that came into my head was Ben Rhodes. You know, he's, the, he's a deputy national security official, probably in his mid or late 30s. And he got a degree in creative writing, and he is one of the people who is the architects of the Obama foreign policy. That, right. that, he, he, <laughs> he personifies it so perfectly. Uh, which you actually, the Obama foreign policy, you actually do need a degree in creative <laughs> writing for. Um, yeah, I, I find, I find, I find this. I find this ability, inability. I mean, I think that is true to a certain extent on the right as well. Uh, this wish to believe that everybody is like us. I'm a genuine multiculturalist. Multiculturalism. I write a lot about multiculturalism in the book because I, I believe it is it is a fraud. Uh, but it, it it conveniently relieves anybody of the need to know anything about any other cultures because the premise of multiculturalism is that all cultures are equally valid and therefore they're all the same and therefore what's the point of knowing anything about them i respect other cultures enough uh to know that they are not as i am and uh that's something that uh, and that's why i don't i think the pushtun the mighty pushtun warrior uh for example in the hills of the hindu kush has many fine qualities uh, but you, you are not going to be able to turn that corner of afghanistan into sweden or vermont um, and I respect those guys enough to know that they are not the same as a bunch of uh, NPR liberal women sitting around listening to all things considered. There are differences in the world and, and pretending that the world is the same and these fellas just haven't had enough exposure to NPR and PBS and if they do, they'll be just like the rest of us, I, uh, I, think, is, I think is actually far more arrogant than the worst kind of 19th century imperialism was, which was at least rooted in reality. And you document the various cultures throughout the world in the book. Uh, since you bring up the Pashtun warrior and, and the Middle East more broadly, the whole premise of our Middle East policy has effectively been that you can win the hearts and minds of people in the Arabic world, that Islam is a religion of peace, that ultimately we all want to get along and that we're all driven by material desires. And if people in Baghdad could just have a great college education and air conditioning and a car, yeah. that all will be well in the world. How are we going to survive with that kind of national mentality? Well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we will survive. It, it, it's interesting to me how even the most obvious provocations, um, uh, for example, a woman being beheaded in Moore, Oklahoma, uh, a policeman having a hatchet stuck in his skull on the streets of New York, uh, a, uh, a, a guy being shot at the war memorial in Ottawa, uh, uh, somebody being uh, beheaded, hacked to pieces in the streets of London in broad daylight. Um, even, these, even the most obvious provocations, we sort of, we, we duck into the multicultural cringe and Obama and David Cameron and Justin Trudeau, who, God help us, may well be the next Prime Minister of Canada. All these people keep saying, oh, no, no Islam to see here. And I write in the book a, a, 
a, a, a lot about some of the smaller things, which I think are even more worrying in a way than the than the beheadings, because you can't ignore a beheading, even if you talk rubbish about it, as Obama and Cameron do. You have to address it when they're chopping the heads off your citizens uh, on uh, YouTube. Uh, Obama and Cameron have to say something about it. The stuff they don't have to say anything about is in some ways more disturbing. Uh, I, I talk about a German lingerie ad where you see this sexy woman. Uh, it's, it's, one, it's a continental ad, so it's sort of soft-focus nudity. You can see she's got no clothes on. She's getting ready to go out on a date, and she's putting on all this sexy German lingerie, and she's sliding up the panties up her legs and hooking up the bra. And then, just at the final moment, you see her pull a burka over her head and step out into the street into the burka. And the, and, and the, and the message is... That, uh, that, that, that these, these Islamo-babes are just as hot under the burqa as German women, and, it, you know, and you could be sexy wearing a burqa, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Muslim women are like hot, sexy lingerie, just as... The, re the reality is, if a Muslim woman, a Muslim actress, had played that role, she'd be dead. She'd have been honor killed. Her father would have thrown her off the balcony, as happens in uh, Sweden, or run over her in the, in the car, as happened in Peoria, Arizona, or chopped her head off, as happened in upstate New York. No Muslim woman can, can say, uh, when, when her father says, hey, uh, hey, what did your husband says, what did you do today, honey? She says, oh, I did this great German lingerie ad. We, uh, we spent eight hours filming me walking around this apartment in my underwear. Uh, she'd be dead. So the entire premise of the ad, which is beautiful, stylish, all the kind of great values uh, that, that, that get a, a, you know, a, a buzzworthy ad that surfs the zeitgeist and all the other great uh, modish lingo. It, it's fantastic. It looks great. It should win tons of awards, but it's a lie and it's a delusion. Uh, and I find stories like that, stories like uh, Barbie, uh, the, uh, the, the, the popular uh, doll for little girls being issued in a burqa, uh, I find these things uh, actually more disturbing in some ways about the level of delusion uh, than, than the beheadings. And there, uh, one, one more story I write about in the book is uh, a Toronto public school uh, where, the, where the school board, the Toronto District School Board, lets the cafeteria be used as a mosque on Fridays. And uh, the boys enter from the front, and behind them sit the girls, and way at the back sit the menstruating girls, because they're regarded as unclean by Islam. And this idea that in a Toronto public school paid for by Toronto taxpayers, you can be segregated not only by sex, boys and girls, uh, but, uh, and boys sit at the front and girls are inferior, so they sit at the back, but that, that girls would be, are quizzed as to whether they're menstruating or not, so they can be dispatched right to the back. Uh, that this could go on in a public school in North America in the 21st century, uh, that, that to me is as, uh, is as disturbing uh, as some deluded do-gooder uh, going off to help Syrians and winding up getting his head chopped off by ISIS. It's, it's, it's the, the illusion, the delusion runs deep in our society. 
And you, you in your book cover sort of the arc of the way the West has been going. And you wrote recently, uh, in light of the anniversary, I believe it was the, the 25th anniversary of the tearing down of the Berlin Wall, you, you wrote, and I'm quoting, Reagan and Thatcher won the war, Obama and Schroeder, Gerhard Schroeder of Germany and the like inherited the peace, unquote. Right. That, that's, a, that's a very profound line. And I guess my question is, was the tearing down of the Berlin Wall merely a blip in the arc of the collapse of the West, or was it actually a victory? Well, I say that it didn't, it didn't feel like a victory. That's what was fascinating about it. You had no sense that our big idea beat their big idea, which is that liberty beats tyranny. Um, the the fall of the Berlin Wall is really like the biggest prison breakout in history because Eastern Europe was a prison. And on the other side of the Berlin Wall, Gerhard Schroeder, who is a largely forgotten man now, as he deserves to be, he was Chancellor of uh, of of Germany before Angela Merkel. He was like most Western leaders of the day. uh, It counted. He was on the other side. Um, and if you go back to the 70s and 80s and you think of the political figures who dominated the scene, then, and again, it's a bipartisan point because it's true of Democrats and Republicans in this country as it, as it was true for both Labour and Conservative in Britain uh, and, uh, and uh, so-called uh, socialists and conservatives in France, is that most of the political leadership of the West was on the other side. They invented this thing called detente which meant, in essence, they were going to live with the prison state. Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, uh, that generation, the pre-Reagan-Thatcher generation of Western leadership, basically accepted uh, half of Europe as a prison state as a permanent feature of life, and they turned a blind eye to all the other little bits uh, that the Soviet Union was gobbling up, whether you're talking about Afghanistan or Grenada, all the other little pieces of real estate they managed to snatch up during the late 70s. And, uh, and, and I end my book with portraits of Reagan and Thatcher and also uh, William Wilberforce, the guy who basically got slavery ablo- abolished, um, because it's imp- I think it's important to recognize that how, no matter how bad things are, individuals can make a difference. Reagan decided he didn't want to live with the Cold War, he wanted to win the Cold War. And he did. Uh, and the same with Mrs. Thatcher. And, uh, and, and, that, and, and the heartening thing about that, particularly when you, know, you look at the squishy, craven types who think that German lingerie ad and putting Barbie in a burqa and making menstruating girls sit at the back of the cafeteria at a public school. When you look at that kind of squishy, craven accommodationism, uh, you realize that no matter how bad it is, the right kind of person, uh, a Reagan or a Thatcher or uh, better yet, really, a William Wilberforce, can change all that. Uh, and actually, no matter how bad the numbers and the polls and the statistics and the generality is, uh, the right individual can still be transformative. On, on the topic of the power of the individual, uh, th- that brought to my mind Jonathan Gruber, who's at the heart of Grubergate. Now, my, my yeah. view of Gruber is that he did a tremendous public service by exposing not just the left's tactics, but how they think about their fellow citizens, their fellow man. Well, what's your take on it? 
Yeah, I think condescension is basically built into the left-wing worldview. Uh, and I think it's very dangerous, actually, for a republic. Um, you know, you can have a uh, decadent monarchy and you can have an evil dictatorship. But I think, by definition, a republic has to be virtuous or it decays pretty quickly into something else. And, and what it's decaying into here and, and in, you know, in, in other parts of uh, in continental Europe and the rest of the West, um, you have a technocratic class who think they are better than anybody else. Um, I'm, a, I'm a subject of the crown and, and uh, people mock uh, many of my fellow Canadians uh, mock and Australians and Britons mock the monarchy. One of the great advantages uh, often of an hereditary monarchy is that people feel vaguely furtive and guilty about it and they understand that an accident of birth has put them on the throne and no more than that. And they and they have a sort of certain humility when they, uh, if you've ever seen, uh, you know, a minor royal duchess dine with a great scientist, or they have a certain humility uh, that 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 the only reason uh, they're there is because of this quirk of birth. When you have a technocratic elite, as we do, they believe they're born to rule. Uh, Benjamin, because they're better than everybody else, and and that and and at its most dangerous, you see it in something like this fellow Gruber, uh, who basically is well aware. His view is that the people are idiots, and they have to be led. Uh, but because they're idiots, uh, you can't rely on them to see the obvious good sense of what you're proposing. So you have to deceive them. That is basically the, the, the condescension of the liberal, so-called technocratic project in a nutshell. On the topic of technocratic elites, I'll just ask one more question. Someone who's a technocrat and an elite, but actually, in my view, doesn't really have the intellectual foundations, the knowledge of history, the knowledge of different peoples, and the knowledge of his own limitations. Our president, President Obama, what does he have in store for this country in the next two years? Well, well, it's funny, you know. I, I went through a lot of things I'd written about Obama since uh, 2007 uh, for, for this book. And, and, there's, and, and I realized that my view on him has kind of shifted uh, back and forth over the years. He's a hard guy to get a, he's a, hard guy to get a handle on. But in the end... Um, I believe his world view is, uh, it, it basically does not accept the vision of American history that almost all presidents from either party have shared for the first 200 years. Um, I, I, I said somewhere that I, it's very hard to imagine, and I say this as a foreigner, because one thing a foreigner knows, you know, is... You, you, you go to a, a, an event in small town New Hampshire and uh, everybody stands up because they're going to do the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. And you think, oh, wait, 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 what do I do here? Do I speak? Do I, do I put my hand on my heart? What do I do here? Because, because you weren't at grade school in America. So it's not, it's not instinctive to you. It's not natural to you. And it's funny to me whenever you see Obama at a... Uh, memorial, um, and this is entirely separate from whether he's born in Hawaii or Kenya or Indonesia or anywhere else. Entirely separate from that. But what you, what I noticed early on is that at these ordinary rituals of the American calendar, 
he doesn't know what to do. They, they seem foreign to him. You get the feeling, uh, and, and I've been in New Hampshire a while now, I've begun to figure it out, but you get the feeling with Obama uh, that, that, uh, that if, he, if he had to stand on a town common and watch a 4th of July parade or a Memorial Day parade, that it would be far more foreign to him than it is to me. Uh, and the reason for that, as I said, it's nothing to do with whether or not he was born in Mombasa or who knows where. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the fact that he's marinated in a worldview that is entirely antipathetic to that vision of America. I used to compare him. There's, some, there's, a, there's a whole section in the book comparing Obama to, uh, to, to monarchy. Uh, and and so I, I taught, there's comparisons to George III, there's comparisons of his travel budget to the Queen's travel budget and all kinds of things. But, but in fact, he's gone way beyond that, and he, be, and he behaves essentially like a Latin American president. In a Latin American republic, the president matters and nobody else does. And that's, how he, and, and that's why he thinks uh, that what matters is uh, that he should be able to reform immigration. And if the, uh, if the legislative branch doesn't want to reform immigration, then as the most important man in the country, he gets to do it himself. That's a post-constitutional view uh, of, uh, of, 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 uh, of America that no other president would have shared. But it's also one that in the broader sense indicates complete contempt, Gruber-like contempt, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, for the will of the people. The people have just voted... Uh, we have a lame duck session until January. In other words, we have a House and a Senate that are full of legislators who are on the way out the door. And he instructs them that during this lame duck session, which doesn't exist in other countries, if in Canada, if there's an election, uh, parliament, parliament basically closes down before the election campaign, and then you have to be elected to the new parliament. So there's no lame duck session or anything like that. If you, when, when the election campaign starts, parliament is no longer in session. And six weeks later, if you don't win your election, you're just an ex-member of parliament. You have no power. Here they have this thing called the lame duck session. And it, but, it is, but, it, but, but they're basically serving out that time before they head for the door. And it shows complete contempt for the will of the people to demand that these senators... Uh, half a dozen of whom the people have told them, you no longer have our confidence, we want you out of there, uh, to tell these, these uh, has-been legislators, you've got to embark on uh, the most significant overhaul of American immigration law in three decades or else. Uh, and again, it's a Latin American view. I'm not ready to compare him to Hitler or Mussolini or anything else, but it's the view of the caudillo, the generalissimo. I matter and the uh, and and the rubber stamp legislature doesn't matter and the uh, the rubes out in hickland they don't matter the the guys i fly over on air force 1 or my 40 car motorcade drives past occasionally they don't matter and and that uh, and that sense of that sense of who of obama uh, as indispensable, unique, the only guy that matters, the man who speaks for the two-thirds of the people, for, 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 for uh, Uncle Pookie or Cousin Pookie or whatever he is, who couldn't be bothered, whatever he says, he divines the votes of those who did vote. I mean, this is a song. I never cared for Al Gore during that uh, the hanging Chad thing in 2000. But at least his lawyers were claiming 
They actually had ballot papers and were claiming to detect indentations and dimples in actual, uh, in actual ballots. Obama is taking that to the next level. He can detect your indentations and dimples even when you were 30 miles from the polling station and never went anywhere near it. And, and that, I, that's what we're going to get for the next two years. Uh, the, uh, as the isolation increases, the arrogance will increase too. Well, Mark, you're just a bitter clinger. <laughs> actually, actually, I'm not. One of the one of the the, the surprising things uh, about having been as uh, sort of professionally gloomy as I've been for a long time is that uh, I'm not. I'm not actually. I'm not actually bitter at all. I've. I've actually. Uh, I, I've. I've lightened up about it because it is destined to fail. This stuff. Uh, and it's just a question. It's just a question. Uh, and again, it's Mrs. Thatcher's great line, the facts of life are conservative. Uh, they are, and they always reassert themselves. And, uh, you, you know, putting, putting together this book, the, the, the fascinating thing is uh, all the little bits of lunatic, something that se- things that seem like an odd lunatic story, in the 1990s or the early years of this century and it becomes it's basically normal and part of the scene by the year 2014 you know things come in in waves they come and go uh the left thinks social progress is is like the aeroplane or the internal combustion engine once you invent gay marriage it can be it can never be uninvented and 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 the, the 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 bits of my book tell a tell a hard story that that a lot of times not just in Sudan not just in Waziristan not just in Yemen uh, but even in the heart of the Western world too uh, things come and go they shift and change they ebb and flow I mentioned William Wilberforce earlier when he was a young man in 18th century London 25 percent of the single women in London were prostitutes. And that's like that. That would make you bitter. That would make you bitter. Uh, a lot of a lot of brothels specialize only in uh, children under the age, women under the age, girls, girls, in fact, under the age of fourteen. And it was accepted as a fact of life. And he decided it shouldn't be a fact of life, and he changed it. And uh, and to me that to me that's that's the fascinating thing you can get away with this stuff you can get away with decadence and softness uh, and all the rest of it for a while uh, particularly if you're as smooth and silky a salesman of this stuff as the democratic party are but eventually uh, as mrs thatcher says the facts of life are conservative and they will find you out the name of the book is The Undocumented. The author is Mark Stein. Mark, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure, Benjamin. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.